guys. I'm Naomi Guy. I'm Joel Guy. And on this podcast, we talk about sex, dating, and relationships, and why we they suck, and why we suck. So I, I didn't agree to that. In the last episode, we just bashed on me, and we bashed a little on you. Not enough, though. You, you, can, you can spend more time bashing on me. We'll be talking about dating culture, and you'll be like, how would you know about dating culture? You've never had a date, you sad sack, and then you, you kick me. Well, let's bash on me a little bit more. Okay. I am about to start a story time. So yesterday was my birthday and my best friend was like, hey, I have a surprise activity for you. And I was like, great. So we went and got brunch and then we went shopping and then we went to get tattoos together. Sorry, I like the idea that the activity is brunch. The activity is brunch. I need you to eat all of these fried eggs and I need you to sop (laughs) them up with some really good noble bread. Yeah. So we get to the tattoo shop. It's the same tattoo shop that we go to get all of our like piercings and stuff from. Would you like to give a shout out to the business? Not really. Okay. So we went into this tattoo shop and um, I am going to be the first to say that I was immature and I ghosted someone slash blocked him because while I was in my dating phase, I was dating around a lot in 2020 And this was one of the many men that it just didn't work out with. So I'm not going to like give his exact name, but we'll just call him Tom. And so I am in this tattoo shop and we're waiting for the guy to get ready. He's like setting up and we're sitting in the front like lobby area. We like signed in, like signed our consent forms, whatever. And we walk, he like is coming back and forth, the guy that's going to tattoo us. And he's like asking us questions and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I better go to the restroom before we get tattooed because I don't know how long this is going to take. So I go into the back of the tattoo shop and I walk into the bathroom and there's somebody in there. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I glance at him and I'm like, oh my God, this guy looks so familiar. He comes out and he's like, oh, I guess that lock really doesn't work. And we kind of laugh about it. And then I walk in, I do my business. I'm sitting on the toilet, I'm peeing. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Tom. And then I commence freaking out for the next 30 seconds because I had ghosted him slash blocked him because one, I'm immature and didn't want to confront the situation. But two, he was 28. I was 20 at the time. That's a large age difference for people that can't count. And I didn't really appreciate the things that he was saying to me. And I really just didn't like the vibes that I was getting from him. So I ended up I take it it wasn't, I love you so much. No, it wasn't. And it it wasn't the opposite either. It was just like, we weren't vibing. Mm. And he was, he was saying things that would make me think that he was like, oh my God, we're going to get serious really fast kind of things. Uh. Like, oh, in the future, let's take a trip to Hawaii and like things like that. So the weirdest part about this entire situation was he has since then found me on several social medias and tried to reach out. Mm. And I will be the first to admit, I'm going to say this again, me ghosting him slash blocking him, not very mature of me, but him continuing to reach out and not getting the message on multiple social media platforms that I don't want to date him slash I don't want to be in his life anymore is even weirder. I... Sorry, did you want to wrap this up? Or? So I'm freaking out. I get my tattoo. I leave. I figure out that the person parked next to us is him because on his, he has like a vanity plate, which I knew the vanity plate because he had posted it all over his Tom's dating profile. Tom's dong. 
Tom's dong, yeah. And on the front, there was a sexual innuendo on the front. You know, on the on when people put like stickers on the top of their windshield. Tom's dong wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. They yeah. put like he put like a sexual innuendo on the top of his windshield. Nice. Um, and I was just like, this is just reconfirming. <laughs> oh, and he lied about his height. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you were up. <laughs> No, because remember that one time I came home and I was like, hey, Joel, can you tell me like how tall this person is? Because based off of the picture that they posted in a door frame and you were like, yeah, so you and our roommate at the time got out like a tape measure. I have a video of this somewhere. <laughs> and you guys were measuring the door frame compared to the picture that I had because door frames are standardly the same size in the United States. And yeah, that's my first story. And what a story it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'll just throw my two cents in. Ghosting sucks and... I think maybe people do it too much, but also I can completely understand women who ghost because they don't feel comfortable having conversations with men because they've had interactions with men in the past where they attempted to confront them and got blown up on or yeah, it was yeah. it was creepy. Mm-hmm. It was, I think those were the vibes that were that's the best word to describe the vibes I was getting. Before we get to the second story, can we try a drink? For oh a yeah, of course. Yeah. Would you like to read it? Sure. This is Misty Withers non-alcoholic ginger beer, handcrafted in Molcateo, Washington, USA. Did you pick this up? Yeah, I picked this up from that local uh, candy shop. Oh, cool. I, this was a while ago, but I know how much you like your ginger beers. You like my ginger beer? I don't know what accent we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> it's harsh. I like it. I like it. I do like a harsh ginger beer. Yeah, it, it's 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 the aftertaste. It's a weird aftertaste. Um, The smell is also throwing me off. The smell's a little weird. It's not like ginger beer smell. I'm picking up like some other notes. It's uh, like not beer, but it's like... Is it (laughs) turmeric-y? Boy, we're getting really specific. (laughs) I could not say. Would we recommend this? I would recommend it. Yeah, it's kind of like the... What is that called? The Lundberg stuff that you like? Lunderberg? Bunderberg. Bunderberg. Yeah. Bungerberg. (laughs) Bungerberg. So, second story... I had told this to dad earlier this week, but I heard this on um, social media. This woman was talking about- Was this an anecdote or a story? It was a story. (laughs) I was getting to that punchline. God, you stole it from me. So I heard this from a woman on social media. She said that she had officially been on the worst fifth date of of anyone's life. And I was like, oh, I'm intrigued because I love these stories. We used to tell these stories on the app while we were both actively dating. So I- Listen to this woman. She was on a date and she um, was talking about that. Like they were out at a bar. They were sitting at a physical bar. Like they, they weren't sitting in a booth. They were sitting at the bar and they'd both went and started their drinks and they were just, you know, chatting and there, there had become a lull in the conversation. So they're just sitting, enjoying the company, enjoying the atmosphere. And she looks over at him and she goes, he has not taken a sip of his cocktail recently. And like they were holding hands. So she's like, Oh, maybe I'm just like holding his hand for too long. And like, That's why he hasn't taken a sip of his cocktail. And she's like, but wait, he has two hands. Where is his other hand? So she looks over and finds his hand in the woman next to his pants. Like giving her like, you know, a sexual favor. And so he didn't realize that the woman that he was actually on the date with had noticed what was going on. So he decides that he's going to excuse himself and say, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So he goes to the bathroom and the woman that was sitting next to him on the other side says, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom to her date. And 
so at this point, the woman who, the original woman telling the story was like, okay, this was my time to leave. Like I was calling an Uber. So she decides to wait outside. The guy follows her outside, you know, after finishing in the bathroom, follows her outside and goes, no, 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 please. Like it didn't mean anything. Like you're the one who I'm on the date here with. Like you mean so much to me, like all that bullshit. She's like, I'm not interested in seeing you anymore. She put up firm boundaries and she left. He follows her back to her apartment and banging on her fucking door. And she had to call the police on him. And that was the worst fifth date that I've ever heard of. I don't understand the mechanics of having a conversation with somebody and then also seducing slash rubbing your hand up someone's thigh simultaneously. This feels more anecdote than story name. I have more of a theory on this. I have a theory that he was... He had met the woman on the other side of him, like in another time. Like, oh, I, no, I have many, I have many, many ideas. You on know, this. people can lie on the internet, Naomi. I'm entirely aware of that, but still, that's a pretty fucking good lie to come up with. Like, that's still like, for, I firmly believe that is a, possibly the worst for fifth date you can ever be on. It's a weird bar. It's a weird bar. Yes. Any other anecdotes, or shall we jump back in? No, I think we should just jump back in. Front seat, back porch, <laughs> whatever this book is called. From the front porch to the back seat. I got it right. I had to read the book Beth title. But. So where did we leave off, Naomi? We left off talking about the price of dating and how women felt the more money that a man spent on them the more that they meant to that man. Yes. Uh, We talked also in the last episode about how going steady meant that people were dating less people overall and were sort of settling down with partners for extended periods of time and how parents and older generations were completely mystified by this. And I want to jump back into where we left off to talk a little bit about money and the value of dating. Naomi, do you recall the columnist's name from episode one that gave us pause. Lusty Leopard. No. Um. <laughs> that's, no, that's your favorite drink now. <laughs> Lusty Leopard. No, it was, why am I just thinking Rufy? Rufy. <laughs> no, Rufy. Oh, okay. Uh, it was Gay Head. And oh, she that makes, one. Yes, okay, that was she, from episode one, yes. She makes a return here. In 1950, Gay Head, the senior scholastic dating advisor, wrote a column that seemed to have been intended to downplay some of the emphasis on money and dating. Stressing that good character and good grooming were important qualities, she also wrote that girls like a boy who's earning some of his own dating money. They dislike feeling like they're dating a father's wallet. The implication was, of course, that girls would rather date the boy's own wallet. While her phrasing might have been less, may have been untrue to her intentions in this case, the same point was made less explicitly throughout the discourse on dating. Because dates were evaluated in economic terms, it followed logically that men had to be evaluated by the quality of dates they were able to provide. The public conventions of dating, insofar as they place money at the center of the dating system, symbolically transform men into no more than wallets. Just as countless sources told men that they could evaluate men on the size of their breasts, others told men to evaluate men on the thickness of their wallets. The public culture of dating portrayed men, no less than women, as interchangeable commodities. 
Still, the language that portrays the commodification of men in dating is relatively subtle, for the process itself is obscured by the power that men's control of money gave them in this dating system. Women, on the other hand, are spoken of directly as commodities purchased by men's money. Both the words used to describe women in courtship and the advice given to men about women clearly reflects this commercial relationship. Since dating is a public act, much of the public discussion of courtship for men deals with the type of girl with whom one should be seen and how much it will cost to be seen with her. In the 1940s, the Daily Northwestern ran a column reviewing Chicago's night spots. The reviewer cautioned men to gauge their dates worth carefully. If she's blonde and simply gorgeous, he advised, take her to the luxurious green and gold empire room at the Palmer House, where, he warned, it will cost $3 weeknights and $3.50 on Saturday. When senior Scholastic asked readers in 1941 poll how much usual date should cost, several high school boys based their answers on how much the girl was worth. Burton J. Hoffman of Philadelphia was adamant, any chicken has to be a Lana Turner or Hedy Lamar to rate more than a buck seventy-five or two bucks for a usual date. If it offered any consolation, the figures didn't quite measure up. Burton's figures were quite generous by contemporary standards. The question of women's monetary worth also came up frequently in advice literature. One late 1940s book for men suggested techniques for winning various types of women. For the prom queen, which the author considered an overpriced commodity, one must spend money like water. You don't win prom princess, as he said, you buy them like show horses. Women's value as dates, so far as the individual value, lay in the public impression they made, and how the possession of them made men look. In an article co-authored by Gloria Steinem, Esquire apprised the student prince of necessary techniques, suggesting that if your date is very good-looking, exploit it. Meet her at your dorm and take her to college places. If your date is not very good-looking, tell your friends you're having an affair with a married woman and take her to the movies. The it in the first sentence is a bit awkward. Perhaps even this junior Machiavelli had trouble coming out to exploit her. But for clarity of expression, we can most profitably turn to Cornell University, where men called a girl who is right to be seen with a fixture. The language describing women as commodities is most consistently pronounced in men's magazines, such as Esquire and later Playboy, just as language traditionally grew more explicit in the sanctuary of men's clubs or locker rooms. A 1963 Cosmopolitan article complained that the messages of such magazines was, women are nice to have around when necessary, an accessory for a well-dressed bachelor. The writer's indignation here is not totally appropriate. Certainly some of the more strident articles written with tongue-in-cheek, many were intended to satirize or caricature. But much satire and humor works by building on existing tensions and situations, playing out their implications to ridiculous extremes. In tracing a way of seeing through a culture, mass-marketed extremes help to define the system's parameters. That's a lot to unpack. How much do you think you're worth on a date? A medium amount. I think I'm worth at least eight bucks. Eight bucks can't even get you a hot dog in New York City anymore. Exactly. (laughs) So women seen as commodities. Yes. Women's value thus dictates how much you should spend in order to be seen with them. Okay. And the the, the language of women is uh, changing pretty dramatically as a result. Uh, They're being described as fixtures and things that are nice to have around. It gets more explicit, though. Margaret Mead, searching for a way to describe American courtship in the 1940s, came out with an apt simile. He takes her out, she wrote, like he takes out his new car, but more impersonally, because the car is his for good, but the girl is only his for an evening. In fact, the equation of women in cars was common in mid-century American culture. Both were property, both expensive, cars and women came in different styles or models, and both could be judged on performance. The woman he escorted, just as the car he drove, publicly defined a man's taste in his features. 
1951, Time Magazine prepared a special feature on the younger generation, including youth's attitudes towards premarital and extramarital sex. A paratrooper at Fort Bragg told the Time correspondent, Before the property is yours, I don't see why anybody can't use it. But his buddy added, After marriage, some guy taking my wife would be like taking my car and putting on a few extra miles. It might improve through use, but I like to drive my own. Ew. Mm Mm-hmm. The equation of wife and car passed without comment in the resulting story, but Time's compiler authors seemed to feel the latter comment was reassuring, showing that youth had not abandoned traditional morality altogether. Earlier that same year, Esquire had quickly conflated the appeal of women in cars in its Esquire Girl 1951 model feature. The text read, You understand, of course, that anyone touching an exhibit in motion does so at his own risk. The guarantee is just what you see with your eyes, gentlemen. Don't ask us about the trade-in value, speed, miles per gallon, upholstery, or how long the job will retain the charm of its marvelous lines and the smoothness of its velvety finish. You now have the 1951 model before you, available in 12 body types, all with substantially the same chassis, ch- chassis, the finest combination of everything the biology and industry can devise for entertainment, education, inspiration, and insomnia. The pseudo-sales pitch does note the upkeep and operation cost for the 1951 mile is slightly stupendous. In fact, these models and others like them cost American women much more than they cost men. The ideal beauty in 20th century America was a clearer standard than ever before in history, and it was an ideal held up to and available to a greater percentage of the population, both men and women, than ever before. Hollywood film stars usually embodied the ideal, which was presented to the nation through the movies and reinforced by magazine photographs and articles, advertisements, models, and pinup girls. The man who observed in 1922 that it was becoming almost impossible to tell the difference between the well-off small-town girl, the shop girl, and the city girl was clearly a poor observer. A multitude of clues remained. But he was right that in the increasing in the 20th century, all three subscribed to the same basic ideals of beauty as set forth in the national media, and that all three had recourse to the same mass-produced products in an attempt to attain the ideal. With the constant example before us of Hollywood perfection, a 1950 husband hunting manual explained, our standards of physical appearance have become extraordinarily high. If you are not gifted with a perfect figure and flawless skin, there's only one solution for you. You must supply yourself relentlessly to the task of making nature over so you can take your place without self-consciousness in the race for a husband. American women spared little effort or expense in the task of making nature over. In 1956, Life magazine reported to its better than 6 million readers, American women spent $1.3 billion on cosmetics and toiletries, $660 million on beauty treatments, $400 million on soap and electric devices, and $65 million on reducing. The grand total, uh, $2,400,000, the article pointed out, was two times the total defense budget of Italy. Expenditures on beauty have been climbing steadily throughout the century. In 1952, for example, sorry, 1942, the Ladies' Home Journal reported that American girls spent close to $800 million a year on keeping beautiful. In 1940, Esquire complained that American women spent $7 million on charm schools in 1939 and claimed that Europe could live happily ever after on the amount American women spent every year on clothes. In 1930, the American cosmetics industry did a volume of $180 million, and the United States boasted 40,000 beauty parlors, up from 5,000 in 1920. Consumption was central to the quest for beauty. Interesting. So, women, now going out on dates with men. Yes. Women's value is being seen as pretty. Yes. Women now are adapting their consumption habits to be more pretty so that they're more desirable, so they can be seen as more popular by going out on dates with men. And get more money out of the date, or like be spent... So More money will be spent on them, the prettier they are. Yes. Do you see any reflection of that in the modern day 
Oh, for sure. But I wouldn't say in like the commoner kind of way. Like I'm I'm speaking of like the celebrity sense. Like mm-hmm. the the bigger the higher your tits are to your chin, the more Drake is gonna spend on you if you're a model. You know what I mean? Like an Instagram influencer. Hmm. So, of course, all these reassurances about being able to improve your beauty had a dark side. Since theoretically any woman willing to invest the necessary time and money could be beautiful, a woman had no excuse for not being attractive. And in a world governed by such reasoning, the competition was always escalating. Women understood that they were competing with not only the real women in their immediate sphere, but also with the ideal women of screen and magazine, film actresses and models on whom no expense had been spared, and no skill withheld to enhance their beauty. These types, these models and actresses represented, were proven successful. They were ideal beauty. They were what men liked. Naturally, the average woman couldn't best Marilyn Monroe or Dorothy Lamar in a one-to-one competition, but as advertisers and advisors stressed, she could imitate them. By becoming as much like one of these ideal types as possible, a woman could take advantage of men's desire for these unattainable ideals of beauty. For almost 25 years, from the sweater girls of World War II well into the 1960s, one ideal of beauty dominated Americans' national culture. At the very least, one could say that America, or American men, had a love affair with the bosom. Less charitable observers called it a fetish. Never before in history, a pre-Cosmo Girl Cosmo article complained, has the average man been so incessantly bombarded with hoopla about the one type of female beauty, the long-legged, big-bosomed Jane Mansfield and Nika Herkberg style. From the sweater girl pinups of the World War II era to Playboy's nude centerfolds, men's magazines focused on women's breasts. They were full of photos of disproportionately developed mammary glands that through some feat of engineering were made to stand straight out to a full 42-inch circumference with no visible means of support. In the 1950s, Playboy featured the continuing adventures of Miss June Wilkinson, whom they called the bosom. In the bosom in Hollywood, Miss Wilkinson's adventure is to walk down the street, breasts encased in conical bra, and preceding the rest of her body like the prow of a battle ship, or perhaps the fins of a Cadillac in reverse. Um, so they do talk about how, like, okay, there could be, like, evolutionary ideals and whatnot, but the big thing, the big reason why bosoms become, like, such an obsession is because bosoms are a way of showing you're dating someone with value. By dating women with big bosoms, men showed they could afford the expense, could command such abundance. Breast size was a quality of a woman that was easily and palpably quantified. It removed the subjectivity of most other evaluations of a woman's worth. A 38-inch chest was better, more prestigious, than a 32-inch chest, making it easier for men to compare women, and so to measure their own attainments in the competitive world of dating. Thus, a man's date became not Lucy, not a nice girl, not a, not a pretty girl, but a 39D, or perhaps a playmate and a strapless 39D brassiere. The addition of bra cup-sized measurement lends a sense of three-dimensionality. It also makes the measurement more precise. Most American women were not 3090s, especially in conjunction with relatively slim hips and waist necessary to make breasts appear startlingly large. In a culture that regarded being small-busted as a defect, a culture that insisted the glamour men most frequently go to the girls who have what it takes to keep a strapless evening dress in a vertical position, this inadequacy clearly presented a problem. It was not an insurmountable problem, however. American women imitated the ideal. They went to the task of making nature over with a little help from the garment industry. In the 1951 catalog, Sears offered 22 types of falsies, rubber cones in white or flesh tone, some equipped with nipples. It's hard to say how many women, as the Esquire put in 1941, were moved to sport a gadget in addition, to keep abreast of their competition. 
But a poll at the University of Wisconsin in 1960 found that most co-eds wanted bigger busts, and a college student told the Ladies' Home Journal Forum in 1956 that teenage girls worried they would have to wear falsies in order to look like. A male seal of approval for the falsie came in an Esquire article entitled Beauty in the Bust, which appeared in an issue which was primarily focused on cars. The female bust is with us most opulently and more openly than ever before in our history. Unlike other revolutionary changes in feminine fashion, it has not cruelly excluded women whose contours do not conform to its dictates. In fact, the new fashion made the invention of the falsy possible and inevitable and gave the flat-breasted an artificial chance for equality. In other words, women insufficiently endowed by nature could resort to technological artifice that could compete by consuming. And just as women consumed so they could compete, they competed so that they could consume. The heroine of the 1955 Ladies' Home Journal story explained the process this way. I'm going to tell you a secret now. It's about girls and how they dress and how they do their hair. Men always think these things are frivolous matters, and nothing could be further from the truth. The girl in the red dress with the plunging neckline may only be shopping for a washing machine as she tangos so sensuously upon the dance floor. She may know very well that it takes this dress to get that fellow to let her wash those clothes in that washing machine he's going to buy her when they're married. She could have explained the girl in the red dress was shopping for a husband, that she was really demure or serious, but that it took such frivolousness, such overstated sexuality to attract men. Instead, she jumped a few steps. Attracting men and getting a husband were just steps along the way. A husband was necessary, the base of the pyramid on which she would pile washer dryers and refrigerators and freezers and sterling and fine china. He would buy them for her, he would justify his possession of her. In this vision, the man is not only an interchangeable commodity, he is ultimately less important than the other commodities he makes possible. Hmm. Okay, so this is a big change. Because we're already talking about how, like, men and women are being devalued and seen as, like, not something valuable in of themselves, but rather as, like, something valuable to be seen in conjunction with. Mm -hmm. And now it's, like... You're not even valuable to be seen in conjunction with. You're valuable because you can provide me with the things that make my life better. Yes. And so it's like another step in dehumanizing the dating process of distancing yourself for like dating and getting in relationships for love. It's dating so you can find someone who's wealthy enough to give you the life you've always desired. So it's turned less into love and it's turned more into sugar baby, sugar daddy relationships. Yeah, a little bit. And this is where my my idea from the, the second episode comes back into play where so many of these cultural attitudes are influenced by capitalism. It's advertisers creating this ideal of a perfect life where if you're not living up to it, if you don't have these, these, these devices, if you don't have, you know, false breasts and, you know, all these amazing cosmetics and an electric hair iron um, and, you know, a beautiful washing machine that can, you know, defluff your clothes, you're, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. You're not as good as other people. And all these people are, like, changing their entire preferences in effort to, you know, keep up with the Joneses, to, to live this, this, this ideal perfect life. Um, and, and so when we're discussing the history of the United States and how love changed, it's impossible to ignore how much of it was influenced by advertising, how much of it was influenced by dating. It wasn't necessarily that like people changed these because they wanted to stick it to the man. They changed a lot of their attitudes because it was like an opportunity to get the things that they desired, that they saw in, you know, movies, TV, radio serials of the day. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, 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 I kind of feel that like those attitudes have been pushed into select corners. You said sugar baby, sugar daddy. And I think that's a good example. There's certainly still people out there who date for the sole purpose of like getting nice things and being treated to like experiences. They wouldn't be able to afford people their own ages. 
and and it's interesting. like that it's, conservative dating app that we talked about. A little bit. I, I was thinking, you know, there's there's a bunch of sugar baby apps um, that that are out there, and it's fascinating that like the expectation now in culture is like if you're a young woman who wants the nicer things, you have to date an older man who probably has some personality or attractiveness defects because either women his own age won't put up with him or he like wants a piece of eye candy he can find around. Yeah. And maybe that's a reflection on our economy. It's that our expectation is these are people in their fifties and sixties. Cause we recognize that like men in their thirties and forties probably don't have a stable financial situation. Yeah. But, but I, I do think in general that attitude has shifted because a lot of women are financially independent now. And so they yes. may not have all the things that they want per se, but they're not dating with the expectation that the person they're dating is going to like provide them a new washing machine. It's pretty likely they already have that. Yes. I don't know. It's kind of strange because like sometimes I see on social media like, oh, I want like that my significant other to make me like a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home girlfriend or stay-at-home wife or whatever but then there's the exact opposite which is like I would want to make my um husband or boyfriend or partner into a stay-at-home like person you know what I mean so it like it goes both ways now Mm -hmm. Naomi I'm looking ahead we are so what's the conclusion of this what 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 does this all end up doing well, More domestic violence. <laughs> uh, what I was getting at was marriage. Oh. The importance attached to engagement rings, bridal showers, wedding gifts, and extravagant weddings and receptions emphasizes the crucial place of consumption and the culmination of courtship. The wedding business was big business. In 1960, for example, when the median American family income was $4,900 a year, an average wedding cost $3,300. The bride and groom received an average of $1,000 worth of gifts. The average bride spent $243 for her trousseau, and the average groom spent $398 for an engagement ring. What's a trousseau? I think that's dress ensemble. Like a slip? I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm, I'm recounting anecdotes. Okay. Not stories. Salt. More than, uh, the, the, the average uh, honeymoon cost more than $361. Look in 1957 did a four-page tin photo spread on double wedding, double glamour, Double glamour. Boy, I'm really good at pronouncing things. I'm thinking all these French terms. (laughs) An unaverage wedding with 600 guests, 12 bridesmaids, 14 ushers, and three bridal consultants. Each bride received 600 plus presents, which were displayed in a separate building and guarded at night. U.S. News and World Report estimated that newlyweds were worth $23 billion to the U.S. economy. An advice book for women summed it up. Merchandise plus marriage equals our economy. In a very real sense, that bold statement was true. Marriage allowed young men and women to fully enter into society, to take their places as adults in the social and economic structure of America. In a culture that's centered around consumption, taking one's placement, establishing a new unit of consumption. Receiving and buying goods gave young men and women a sense of belonging to their culture, a personal sense of meaning. The act of consuming gave them a joint interest that cemented the relationship between bride and groom. Within such a culture was only appropriate that this ritual of initiation privileged the act of consuming. Here, marriage became, in an additional sense, the culmination of courtship. While the theme of consumption and courtship is tangled, this much is clear, courtship was, for most young Americans in this era, the time when they began actively consuming America's visible plenty. In their courtship, youth defined themselves through acts of consumption and in terms of consumption. Thus, they celebrated their lives and their love. That's interesting because... 
every so often like something comes up on my social media talking about weddings and the different like the the wedding industry within itself is billions of dollars mm-hmm. every year and and it has been since that time period apparently but I think that the biggest hack that I've been given like if I'm ever end up planning a wedding for one reason or another that if you put in uh, an item into a search engine like um cups you put cups into a search engine and then you put in wedding cups keyword wedding yeah. or, or marriage cups into the same search engine the same cups that you're going to see on the first search are twice to three times as much just because you put the wedding label on the cups yeah. that you are or the item that you're looking up and they do this because they understand that weddings are such a big industry in this, well, all the countries. Like, I don't know a single country that weddings aren't like a huge like deal. Like India has seven days of celebrations when there's a wedding. Um, there, There's big, um, like uh, more and more, you're seeing more and more elaborate weddings. But then there's this opposite sort of um, generational shift that we're seeing with our generation where they're just going and eloping by themselves or with their 10 closest friends. Yeah. I was thinking that if young people in our current day and age are living with a partner for extended periods before they get married, the likelihood they already have all the things they need to make their yeah. household run is pretty high. Yeah. Um, and even if they don't have like the perfect washing machine or the person perfect dryer, it's very likely they're happy with whatever they you know, need. Yeah. So the idea of having this elaborate wedding and expecting to get all these amazing gifts seemingly is diminishing over time. That's at least my perception because Mm -hmm. you don't need gifts. I mean, if anything, you might just need straight cash to, you know, help finance uh, a A honeymoon, honeymoon, something like that. One thing that I saw recently that made my heart go go, grow three sizes uh, in, in a single day was I think it was a TikTok of a woman who was explaining how she and her partner were helped by their friends to plan a wedding in a week. I didn't get the exact details, but it sounded like her partner has like terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. They wanted to get married before like he inevitably passes. And so with the help of some friends, including one of them who's apparently like a wedding planner, they put together like a garden wedding party in their backyard in the space of a week and had, you know, catering and a fancy mm-hmm. cake and all that stuff. And, and the thing was not, this was an incredibly opulent wedding. The thing that made me go like, oh, this is really cool was this idea of your like friends and family dropping everything in this like active community yeah. working together to like solve all these problems and you know gather all the materials needed to give you like a special occasion and that seems more special to me personally than like dropping $150,000 on a wedding at you know a really nice event space that has you know cream colored roses and a thousand, ten thousand candles that yeah. all smell different that someone can go through, and and the flower sniff. arrangements and the cakes and, and catering, and, and, you know, the finest meats, and you know, a cake that's ten stories. Somebody, tall yeah, somebody told me recently that they got Costco cake for their wedding, mm-hmm. and everyone like kept coming up to them during the ceremony. Where'd you get this cake? Where'd you get this cake? It was like a sheet cake from Costco, right? But they like didn't have that long waiting list and they didn't have to wait three months in advance to like put in their wedding cake order and they just yeah. ordered it like two days before and it was ready in time for the ceremony. You know I, what I'm I mean? not judging people who have like fancy weddings inspired of that. I think the big question that's worth asking is why do you want those things? Yeah. Like there's certainly things at a wedding that like 
are kind of make or breaks that, you know, kind of define the wedding experience to some people. There's a lot of other things where people purchase them just because they want their wedding to look like other weddings. They want their wedding to, you know, have like a, a cool DJ. They want their wedding to, you know, be in a church because that's where weddings are supposed to happen. So yeah. They spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars renting the space. And I think it's really worth questioning, like, what is this about? Is it about the appearance of looking like you got your act together and are entering, mm-hmm. you know, this symbolic commitment? Or is it about like celebrating a relationship and like the joining together of two families or whatever? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It does seem a bit ridiculous to me if you're a young person in this time getting married at the youthful age of 18 to 20 to your partner who is 21 to 23, having no money, expecting, you know, your parents to pay for most of it. um, And then, you know, piecing your life together afterwards. Yeah. That, that, that's just crazy. Yeah. And, you know, the, the the idea of going deeply into debt for a singular day of fun and excitement is also baffling to me. Yeah. You should do a seven-day wedding. I, it, you should get a camel stuffed inside a hippo, stuffed inside a rhino. I feel like the hippo should be outside of the camel. I, I don't know how one prepares hippo. I don't think it's a common delicacy. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds gamey, honestly. It sounds like it might kill you when you're trying to eat cook it? it. Yeah, yeah. You, you just it's drop like the you hippo with, yeah. into like a pot <laughs> so like, it's a like a crawfish. Yeah, yeah. So Naomi, we've talked about women as commodities, but now we want to talk about the thing that all of our listeners have subscribed to our podcast for: hot, sex. steamy sex. Yeah. <laughs> So youth born in the first four decades of the 20th century had sexual experiences fundamentally different from the experiences of their 19th century counterparts. Of course, the sexual activities of youth were not totally different, as many excellent histories have shown. American Victorians are neither anti-sexual nor asexual. 19th century youth played kissing games that rivaled 20th century versions, engaged couples indulged in what their grandchildren call heavy petting, and rates of premarital intercourse did not change drastically at the beginning of the new century. What changed was not sexual acts so much as what those acts meant, how they were perceived, what symbolic freight they carried. Individual sexual expression changed less than the context for that expression. The new context, four understandings of sex, however, profoundly changed how youth experienced sex. In the 20th century, sex and sexuality increasingly entered the public sphere and made part of the very definition of 19th century Americans have participated in the creation of public discourse on sex, prescribing, regulating, and categorizing. But this discourse was not a discourse of youth. Youth, as we understood the term, hadn't come into being. As discussions touched on young and as discussions touched on young unmarried people of the respectable classes, they usually equated sex with body, prescribing cures for the solitary sexual act of masturbation, not for heterosexual union. The 20th century discourse on sex centered around youth and their heterosexual premarital experience. When he condemned the linkage of youth and sex, a celebratory current began to gain strength by the 1920s. Some of the more accepting attitudes towards sex stemmed from the doctrines of popular Freudianism, which seemed to insist that a freer expression of sexuality was necessary for mental health. But the celebration also came from another source. Many Americans were fascinated with youth, young men and women who defined themselves as youth partially through public sexuality and sexual experimentation. Public discourse observed... 
Public discourse absorbed both currents, the condemnatory and the celebratory, and new sexual conventions grew in the tension between new and old, between the sexual prescriptions of authorities who sought to control sexual expression and the sexual prescriptions of youth who placed sexuality at the center of youth culture. The crucial element in this transformation was the rise of a national youth culture. Firmly in place by the 1920s, this new invisible phenomenon was produced in part by new associations of boys and girls and men and women in co-ed high schools, colleges, and the workplace. In late 19th century and early 20th centuries, youth were segregated increasingly by age and decreasingly by gender. Groups of young men and women came together in an intimacy of common experience, sometimes with relative freedom from the supervision of family and traditional community, and formed tight peer culture groups. By the 1920s, when more and more youth had access to peer cultures and national media was helping to create a national peer culture, youth had become the transcendent definitional category, the encompassing category defined in opposition to age, that overrode the more traditional opposition category of nature. In other words, young people thought the division between men and women were less important than the division between young and old. This allegiance of youth, boys and girls together, threatened the authority of adults. Sex quickly became the key issue that threatened its existence. While the decline in the power the family exerted over its young, the freedoms offered by the city, the surge in the number of young people attending high school, and the flow of young women in offices all helped create the new youth culture in the 20th century, local youth cultures had begun to develop earlier on college campuses. Authorities had not missed their implications. Horace Mann, in his presidential inaugural address at Antioch in 1853, that's our mother's alum school, by the way, warned of dangers of men and women's association together. What did you say? Our mother's alumni school. What? No, what was the school that you said? Antioch. Okay. I thought you said, I thought you said something. <sighs> Horace Mann warned of the dangers of men and women's association together without supervision that coeducational colleges allowed. In 1915, the dean of women at the University of Wisconsin lamented the tidal wave of irresponsible joyless, joyousness that had come to college campuses in the 1980s, 1890s, with the influx of youth who believed college life was more fun for your money. She warned that the problem of inexperienced, unrestrained young men and women thrown together socially, that adequate guidance was critical, and that something must be done to control the students. Control was difficult. At Northwestern, for example, in 1904, the dean of women told co-eds in chapel, I have heard that some, some young women allow men to touch them, to hold their hands. My dear girls, never indulge in such frivolous actions. The Northwesterner put her advice in perspective with the headline, Alas, that co-eds should spoon. While peer cultures developed earlier and stronger at colleges, discrepancies between the conventions of youth and adults were also becoming plain in the larger society. The advisor for the Ladies' Home Journal complained in 1907 that she was plied with queries from apparently respectable youths as to how soon after the first meeting a man should feel free to kiss a girl, and asked by a girls what to do about this or that young man who had shown his devotion by affectionate demonstrations. It was beginning to seem, she said, that young men and women between about 15 and 20 expected hand-holding and kissing. The advisor, who believed that a couple should by no means hold hands until betrothed, lamented the state of society. But in doing so, she confirmed the strength of the new conventions to her one million plus readers. We discussed this in part one. Do you remember? We discussed a lot of things in part one. You have Authority to be figures would write articles about how like immoral yes. and gross the youth yes. were, and yes. in turn be like, oh yeah, a lot of other people are doing this cool activity yes. you could be doing with your partner. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this just resurges once again. Everything that you're talking about is just giving me like really bad like BYU vibes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay, so th th it's saying that, you know, youth are no longer seeing like men and women as like utterly 
distant entities. Rather, it's like young people and old people. That's the real cultural divide. And to an extent, like I think that's true, especially as like modern media comes into focus and people are consuming the exact same things. Yes. Right. It's no longer like men are going off and hunting and women are staying at home, you know, playing piano and knitting. It's, yes. you know, they're, they're both reading the same magazines, listening to the same radio shows, going to the same Broadway shows, etc. Yes. So there's definitely this like mingling of culture uh, that means that, you know, the older people who want to go harumph and the younger people who want to go to the park are, you know, so distant. I wonder also if age gaps in relationships become less large in this time. Okay. Where like before in the culture of courting, it was probably seen as acceptable to like have an older man date yeah. a very young woman because like, oh, family allegiances, money, whatever. Yes. And in this culture, it's like, well, the old man's not going to understand, you know, how, how frivolous and free spirited the young woman is. She yeah. should only date within her age range. Um, but then of course you have this weird thing where it's like, the girl wants to be dating the guy who's financially successful, not the guy's father. Mm-hmm. So you, you you can see that there's some tensions there, but I would say for the most part, like age would play a big role. Yeah. So you talked about this, I think in our last episode, petting and necking. Yes, necking. Petting and necking were the major conventions youth contributed to courtship in the years between World War I and the sexual revolution of the 1960s. A significant percentage of young people had premarital intercourse during this period, but it did not become conventional behavior among youth until the mid-1960s. In 1922, the Ann Arbor Times News argued that snuggle pupping, a briefly popular term for petting, was nothing new. Years ago, it was called spooning, later fussing, and then petting. So you have snuggle pupping, spooning, fussing, and then petting inevitably. And that's just the same word for spooning yeah. now. That's very funny if like you were like, I'm going to go spoon my partner. Oh, my, my word. You're going to do all sorts of indecent things. No, I was going to cuddle her in bed. How dare <laughs> In the bedroom. The author, though he sounds like an eminently sensible man, turned out to be wrong. He assumed that petting was just a new term for the light lovemaking celebrated in the popular songs of courtship in the late 19th century. What is light lovemaking? Another writer in the 1920s defined the petting party as a party devoted to hugging. By the 1930s, petting would have a more exact definition, one that was a long way beyond spooning and hugging. While the technical language of the science varied in different parts of the United States, necking was generally accepted to mean caresses above the neck and petting caresses below. Pe- caresses above the neck. I don't even know. It's like, let me fondle your Let me tickle your, your ear. <laughs> a 1950s marriage text offered a more exact distinction. In necking, stimulation is from the neck up, and the main areas of sexual stimulation remain covered by clothing. The neck... Lips and ears are utilized extensively as sexual objects. Petting, on the other hand, includes literally every other caress known to married couples, but does not include complete sexual intercourse. Of course, as sexual acts go, neither petting nor necking were new. Their new significance lay in their naming, in their rise to conventionality, and their symbolic importance to youth. Petting was no longer on the fringes of courtship. It was something couples did in absolute privacy, not knowing how others were doing the same. It was no longer what boys and young men did with lower-class girls, exploiting them to save respectable girls from sexual pressure. Sex was accepted by youth, male and female. Necking and petting were public conventions, expected elements in any romantic relationship between a boy and a girl. As Floyd Dell explained in Parents Magazine in 1931, oh man, got my new issue of Parents Magazine. <laughs> Ew. I don't even know what the, like, what is the, 
target audience for that? Like, is it stay-at-home moms? Because I don't know a single father in this day and age, in this day and age, that would sit down and be like, "Let me read parental advice." Well, let me finish the sentence. We'll get to that. As she explained in Parents Magazine, 1931, when a girl pets, she is acting according to the code of her own adolescent world. She feels behind her the approval of her own age group, and she is serenely sure that she is all right. So. We talked about how, like, authority figures in the sciences and psychiatrics are telling parents that, like, getting married super young is really important and Mm -hmm. that there's all these, like, changes in conventions that they should be made aware of. You have marriage books. I mean, some of them came out later, like, by Dr. Benjamin Spock about, like, what it means to parent and, like, raise your kids. We will discuss a little bit of that because that gets really wacky. But I think the general idea is in American culture and Western culture at the time, there is this new focus on like scientific methods of doing things. And that, you know, has to do a lot, I think with the industrialization of the 20th century. And so a lot of parents feel pressure to do parenting the right way. And so Mm -hmm. they're constantly consulting like guides Mm -hmm. uh, in order to like not commit the same mistakes that their parents may have done. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of them probably felt it was more important just because there'd been so many changes in society during their lifetime to sort of keep abreast of what like trends were going on. Okay. By 1952, a marriage text noted that necking and petting were customary for young Americans, a basic part in the subculture of youth. The author continued, a girl in modern society may neck whether she personally enjoys it or not. She wishes to be a member of the dating group, and this is one of the requirements for membership. It is certainly well known that many young people smoke or drink for this reason, so why should it be so difficult to see they engage in mild sexual contact for the same reason? Both explanations emphasize the same point. Petting and necking were part of the definition of youth culture. The continued normalization of sex came partly through dating system. Dating meant in practice that young people had many partners, and these were all potential necking or petting partners. So it's not what the parents thought, which is like, oh, if you date lots of people, you're less likely to have sex with them. It was instead the opposite. If you date lots of people, you're more likely to be like either pressured into sex or feel the expectations of sex in these relationships. Now, they were an integral part of the dating system, and to participate in the system, one had to meet its requirements. Furthermore, the dating system promoted sexual experimentation not only through the privacy it offered, but also through the sense of obligation it fostered. Remember when we talked about how women were objects? Yeah. It was expected to treat them? Well, we also talked about consent in this day. Let's see how that evolves, Naomi. Dating was an unequal relationship. The man paid for everything, and the woman was thus indebted to him. According to many, boys and men were entitled to sexual favors as payment for that debt. The more money the man spent, the more petting the woman owed him. One boy answering the question, does a girl have to pet in order to be popular, wrote, when a boy takes a girl out and spends $1.20 on her like I did the other night, he expects a little petting in return, which I didn't get. Um, Most people during this time believe that, like, most youth were petting and like necking and doing all this stuff. Like whether or not they actually were, wasn't important. It was just like the cultural expectations had shifted. So it was like more acceptable. And this discourse was becoming a lot more common. Uh, Speaking of popular advice, um, there was a lot of information uh, given to parents and elders about what they should be doing. So you had like the 1953 Kinsey report, which Mm -hmm. we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, Times wrote an article talking about how, like, the attitudes in the report, which was based on uh, interviews with 5,900 women, was, like, couldn't possibly reflect the diversity of opinions among American yeah. women, even though it's supposed to be a representative sample. Yeah. And they were like, uh, there's no reason that you should believe there's morality in numbers. Where they're like, just because a lot of people are doing it doesn't mean it's moral. 
The Ladies Home Journal ran a story under the blur, but the facts of behavior as reported are not to be interpreted as moral or social justification for individual acts. And Look ran a page of outrage letters to the editor that included the following. I resent the implication that the findings of Dr. Kinsey are in any way scientific. Any sampling of 5,900 women of the barroom dance hall type cannot represent the mental, moral, or spiritual integrity of American womanhood. So parents and elders aren't a fan of this, even if they like think it's happening. So how do you fight back? Well, preserving the moral integrity of American womanhood seemed to be a monumental task. One expert told parents they'd better begin at birth if they wanted to keep their daughter from becoming a petter. She advised them to not love the baby too much, to practice the control you're going to teach her in all of your family life. Too much affection could create an obsessive appetite for love and to make her hungry for physical demonstrations of affection in later life. So you hear all these stories about, like, parents who raised their kids in the 1950s and 60s being really cold and distant. Yes. And you're like, was it because of PTSD? Yeah. Was it because, like, they they didn't know how to love because, like, they hadn't had the support of their parents? Uh, Well, it may also have been because you have marriage guides and, like, guides to parenting, which are, like, if you give your children too much affection, they'll have sex. You'd be a terrible parent. You don't want your child to be a whore. That, that's literally the yes. advice. You don't want to show your baby love. And of course, those children then grow up and those children... Have intimacy issues. Well, potentially. Uh, I was thinking those children voted for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean to make digs. That's, that's not the point of this podcast. He's making digs anyways. So how do parents address this? Well, they don't love their kids. That's one answer. One of the other options is by not limiting youth's privacy. Sorry, it is by limiting youth's privacy. So you heard already about how like parents would arrange these, you know, youth dances for like yeah. middle school students. That's one good example is having, you know, your youth chaperoned by other yeah. parents in public. Um, they also circumcised, circumscribed <laughs> the private time available to their children on dates by requiring them to be verifiable destinations or supervised events and by controlling curfews. One magazine suggested parents set curfews at the time the date was supposed to end, plus 45 minutes for the couple to get something to eat. Many parents used some version of this formula, and if everything in town closed at 12.30 p.m., they reasoned, what were couples going to do if allowed a 12.30 curfew? Of course, couples could buy some private time by foregoing the customary snack, by skipping the movie, and getting a plot summary from a friend's insurance. But that was not so likely to happen on a casual date. Double or group dates also limited sexual privacy. By restricting access to a family car, by strongly encouraging couples to double up, parents ensured a certain amount of pure chaperonage. Petting and necking would still go on, but weren't as likely to get out of hand with another couple in the front seat. Finally, parents used the classic technique of supervised privacy. Just as, in years past, girls had received serious callers in the parlor with parents discreetly chaperoning from another room, 20th century parents encouraged teenagers to have their private time at home, where knowledge of an adult present in the house would usually limit sexual experimentation. All of this was also used by colleges and universities. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't add my sound effects. What? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Naomi. Uh, where the struggle between students and authorities of the right to privacy is much better documented. This was probably important because parents were like, I'm going to send my kid to college, but what if they have sex? And universities were like, well, part of our sales pitch is we won't let our kids have sex. Okay. So they began as simple codes and became increasingly lenient and complicated as time went on. In 1915, for example, the University of Wisconsin, the rules for women's dormitories simply said that a man could be received on Saturday, Sunday, and holiday afternoons, and until 10 p.m. nightly, and that business calls of 10 minutes would be permitted at other times. I'd like to sell you this Tupperware, young woman. (laughs) 
These regulations devote an equal amount of space to spelling out quiet hours, requiring that bedroom slippers be worn after 10 p.m. But the number and complexity of rules built up year by year. By 1962, at the University of Michigan, the official student handbook devoted nine of its 15 pages to rules for women. The length was necessary because the system was so complicated. Curfews varied from night to night, were stricter for underclass women, and were mediated by varying numbers of ALPs, automatic late permissions, for which some events qualified and others did not. The system of penalties for lateness showed how carefully student behavior was monitored. Penalties began when a student had 11 late minutes, but late minutes could be accumulated one at a time throughout the semester. Rules in the earliest years of the 20th century were less specific and elaborate, not because they were lenient or unimportant, because authorities assumed many things that did not need to be said. They generally assumed that young women would not receive callers if not suitably chaperoned, that respectable and serious women students would not wander around all hours of the night with young men, and they were not always right. But as patterns of permissive behavior in society changed, and as the character of student bodies also changed, these assumptions were less founded. The multiplying system of rules and the finer distinctions they entailed show how beleaguered the old assumptions were. Authorities now had to tell students that they must behave according to the social standards of reputable places of entertainment and homes. They had to craft a myriad of rules to make sure that these students did. You ever wonder why there's TAs on your floor in college? Really? That, that's a big role. Well, you I mean, know. I just kind of assumed that ASU just needed TAs, you know, to wrangle the hooligans. I mean, that, that's not completely wrong. I mean, part of it is like having someone who like a student can confide in if there's like stuff going on who can connect them with resources at the university. I mean, that's certainly ASU resources, but a lot of it is like making sure that students are following the student handbook and the codes of conduct. And like, while it isn't like sex these days, it still has to do with like what's permissive in society, like doing drugs or alcohol consumption Mm -hmm. at school. So yeah, that's something to think about. So how did people get together if they had all these rules? Uh, well, they set a series of rules about, like, what counted for events. So in the University of Michigan, the dean's office announced in 1947 of any mixed group, more than two people, listening to a football game must be registered as a party before noon the preceding Thursday and have secured the requisite number of approved chaperones. Uh, many students disapproved because they saw it as an incursion onto their privacy. Uh, spontaneity of contact between the sexes was being eroded in the 40s and with it many of the possibilities for sexual privacy. So the refuge offered offered by dormitory lounges and date rooms were not especially secure. At the University of Michigan in the 1950s, women students fought with the resident head over the use of the Stockwell House Lounge. Under pressure, girls passed a resolution against petting or lying on the couches in the lounge, but the following semester, the house director said, the problem of over-amorous couples persisted and proposed setting up a lounge patrol. Students, in a counter-proposal, suggested setting up an alternate visitor's room where students could feel free to take grandmother's and great aunts. So there's sitting rooms at a lot of these universities, you know, at ASU, there were a number of lounges around the dorms too, where you could go make food or do homework or whatever. The only, the only patrol that was in our lounges was the amount of cockroaches. Yeah, they kept all people out, out of there. Thing, right? No, they kept people out of there. Nobody wanted to be in there. So the university is like, stop having sex on our couches. And students are like, uh, no. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to have cops that enforce the no sex yeah. in lounge rules. And like, well, what if we have a second lounge where you can take your grandmother who's visiting and not see people making out on couches? And I guess that's the solution. This seems too much. So why is this book called Front Porch to the Back Seat? Tell me, Joel. Students looked for privacy elsewhere. 
1937, Pulse, a student magazine at the University of Chicago, listed nine tried-and-true necking places on campus. While these spots were safe from campus uh, authority eyes, the authors warned they weren't likely to be completely private. Instead, they recommended the automobile whenever possible. Cars were generally considered the best and most private opportunity for sexual privacy. A short story in Mademoiselle describes college girl cars with boxes of tissues and clean seat covers that were parked in a lot behind the dormitories where the student couple made love. But many colleges and universities had regulations against students having cars. In 1963, students at a Midwestern university launched a campaign about this restriction. One male student told the New York Times Magazine that the issue wasn't transportation but privacy. We wouldn't care if the car had no wheels, just so long as they had doors. Oh my god. Outside college, though subject to none of the institutional regulation and official scrutiny students bore, courting couples also relied on the automobile for sexual privacy. Some municipalities try to prevent couples from taking advantage of the dangerously excessive privacy cars offered by making the form of supervised privacy available. One police chief in New Jersey allowed parking at night in the county parks. Patrol cars protected courting couples, but the couples were required to leave their car lights on in the park legally. Atlanta in 1953, the city council tried to ban parking between Sunday down and sun up in Piedmont Park, the traditional Atlanta parking place. The order drew national attention. After someone pointed out that there were advantages in having a specific parking place where group controls operated in perhaps limited sex, the council unanimously rescinded the order. Couples were going to park anyway, and as parents chaperoning from the next room had realized long ago, it was better to retain at least some control over their sexual expression. So you have couples inside universities finding places on campus to make out discreetly. Yes. And have sex. I yes. don't know. It, it's very possible. A couple outside of universities are finding places around town that they can make out discreetly. Yes. And at some point, the authorities are like, well, what if we start regulating this? And that way, we, can, we, we know people are going to have sex, but if like there's a cop coming through the park every few minutes, like we're going to authorize this because it'll mean, similar to having like a second couple in the front seat, you'll be less likely to like yeah. go all the way. I wonder also if this mentality about colleges being a place to like control students' behavior kind of explains why the student revolutions of the 1960s and 70s were thought of as so crazy at the time. Because like the backlash to students, you know, occupying universities yeah. and you know going their own way, becoming hippies, you know, not showering, hanging out at Berkeley, doing all this like summer of love stuff. I love how hanging out at Berkeley is like <laughs> your thing that describes hippies. It's it's a pretty good description. Yeah. But, but this must have seemed like completely mind-blowing to parents. It was a complete disregard for the natural order. Yeah. Right? It'd be like if like people were just walking up on the street and punching cops all of a sudden. It's like complete disregard for structures of authority and power that existed. Yeah. And these students, probably in conjunction with the fact there was now the pill available during this period, um, you know, were, were completely flaunting what authorities were thinking was like the expected way you should date and conduct yourself and live your life in society. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, a lot of these authorities were raised in a culture where, again, it's like women are objects and the thing you can aspire to is a white picket fence house and, you know, mm -hmm. nice dishwasher. And if the students are like, no, I want to, like, live in a commune and smoke weed all day. <laughs> mind-blowing. <laughs> Very mind-blowing. I just, I feel like this is another example, like all their control is just another example of when, when parents get too strict, like kids become more creative. Yes. I think that that's certainly accurate. Um, so we've talked about 
coupled in consensual relationships, and I feel it's worth touching upon the negative aspects of how this culture is developing. Okay. We've talked about how women are kind of treated as objects and how there's now an expectation where if you treat a woman to a good time, you get favors in return. And while sometimes the women were in favor of this, that wasn't always the case. And let's talk about the implication there. While the regulatory systems attempted to control sex by controlling women, this ideological system made women themselves the controllers of sex. By its logic, women, according to their nature and their own self-interest, must enforce sexual limits. In order for women to set the sexual limits in courtship, however, their partners had to allow them that power. The system took for granted that men would naturally want some form of sexual activity, and according to convention, for gallantry's sake, a man was not in a position to withdraw from petting, even should he very much want to. In order to control and limit sexual expression, the woman had to have absolute veto power over her male partner. Women's no always had to cancel man's yes, and her no had to be as natural and assumed as his yes. Many women, however, refused to give up their share of sexual control or to take their share of sexual responsibility. Sometimes men's rejection of women's veto power was brutal, what a more enlightened generation would recognize as rape. Other times, the struggle for sexual control simply meant that a 14-year-old boy got his face slapped for kissing a girl whom he liked very much and who liked him equally on their first date. However, if men refused to allow women the power to control the mutual sexual experience, this system of sexual control could not function. Experience offered plenty of evidence that was the case, but instead of recognizing that equation was fundamentally unbalanced, the arbiters of convention juggled the terms. The convention that sexual limit setting was women's responsibility became an if-then statement. If virtuous women imposed limits on sex, then men would accept these limits. If the system was valid, failures of then could only result from failures of if. In order to maintain belief in the validity of this system of sexual control, one had to believe that men would always submit to the limits set by virtuous women. By the logic of the system, all unsanctioned sexual acts were the women's fault. Either she had not set limits, or she was not truly virtuous. So, this system of logic evolves throughout, like, the 20th century. In 1905, like, the Ladies' Home Journal gave advice to a woman named Sadie, asking what to do when a man persists in holding your hand in spite of all you can say. Her answer was, no man who is fit to be welcomed in your home would refuse to release your hand if you asked him as he meant it. Her advice is the formula that persisted for decades, but one important difference. Here, the man's liberties are not necessarily the woman's fault. By 1914, the author of a later Ladies' Home Journal advice column largely ignored men's possible role. A girl wrote from a co-ed college asking what to do about boys who refused to date girls that didn't allow privileges. Their advisor, Miss Parks, replied, I think that girls are largely responsible for the attitude of boys in this manner. For if, whenever fun merged into familiarity, the winds would instantly check such conduct, the boys would soon learn what to expect whenever they dared transgress the barrier of a, respecting, uh, of a self-respecting manner. Uh... Yeah, this doesn't go well. Uh, basically, I think this is a reaction to women moving from like a tightly controlled authority environment to one in which parents have less say. And so the assumption is like, well, if you had accepted like this culture we created of courting, you wouldn't be in this situation where like sex was on the table. And so it's up to you to like enforce the limitations here. And if you like really cared, you would like put up a fight. And so it's very much a victim blaming culture. But it goes even further than that because as soon as like this culture of like sex becomes more acceptable and this idea that more and more people are having sex, this popularizes the idea that men are owed even more sexual favors over yeah. time. And this like gets directly to intercourse. 
it's also kind of where like slut culture comes about where men begin to like share stories about which women are known for being loose when you like buy them really fancy dinners. And so unfortunately this then perpetuates this idea where if you, you know, treat this girl as this really nice, you know, dinner and dance date, then she's going to have sex with you. And if she doesn't, then like you're obliged to take what you feel is deserved. So that's like really terrible. And, um, it's not good that, again, the authorities were reinforcing a lot of this based on the premise of science and, like, evolution. So not only did subscribers to the system often excuse men, even violent rapists, from responsibility for their acts, many authorities and experts directly encouraged boys and men to sexually exploit women. Their encouragement encompassed a wide range of behavior. While writers of teen advice columns when they assumed that boys were within their rights to try all the girls out meant only necking, there was no logical reason why such advice would be so restricted. Other experts pushed it further. One of the most direct advocates of man's sexual aggression was a psychologist, Dr. Albert Ellis. Whether or not his doc- Dr. Ellis's firsthand lips, tongue, and genitalia sex research was enthusiastically endorsed by the entire psychological profession, he was able to present an impressive list of credentials to the purchasers of his best-selling book, Sex and the Single Man, in 1963. Ellis, using the classic scientific journal article form, notes the case, established that men could not remain sexually abstinent without phys- physical or psychological impairment of health. So it's like, if you don't, like, give me sexual favors, I'll die. It's the whole, like, women are responsible because you got me horny. Yes. He then advised men how to satisfy their sexual needs. Ellis favored calm, consistent, forceful depropagandization of women because it yielded a more generalized result. The girl that you persuade to think well of sex relations today will usually be a more willing bed of mate for some other fellow tomorrow. However, he did not discourage physical persuasion. From the first time you make a pass at a girl, he advised, try to go as far as you can possibly go with her sexually. He then described proper technique in great detail. As extreme as it sounds on paper, this pattern of aggression and limited force confronting stubborn resistance was taken for granted by many advisors. Dear Abby, in Blue Gene Biology, portrayed all boys as potential wolves verging on rapists. She advised meeting male force with violence. A stereophonic slap ought to discourage any mad lover. And if he really likes you, she reassured girls, a slap won't anger him. He'll respect you. This conventional pattern did merge into behavior. A study of male aggression on a university campus found that over half of co-eds questioned were offended by a date's behavior at least once during the school year. Not great. You know, it's, it's wonderful, I think, that the culture is loosening up and there's no longer as many more surrounding, like, women being tainted or unpure when, you know, they're having sex with their partners willingly. But unfortunately, this also encourages the idea that, like, sex is an owed aspect of relationships in conjunction with the whole idea that women are commodities. And, like, this goes both ways because you have women who are now responsible when, like, they don't fend off, like, sexual aggression, but also the idea that all men are potentially rapists. And, like, it's up to the woman to, like, mitigate his urges. And so it's fucked up for both genders. I would argue it's like much more fucked up for women. But like this is not something that um, this is something that has like major repercussions down the line. It it completely changes how like men and women view each other. It completely changes how casual dating works because if every woman is now thinking she's potentially at risk for assault. And every man is now thought of as like a potential assaulter. People are going to be much more cautious in dating. 
Like the fact that these norms opened up and many people took advantage of them means that all dating forever has been tainted. Cool, huh? What a great pessimistic view. Well, what's your take then? No, I completely agree with you. I just think it's awful that that is what came about. Yeah, I, I think there's also like certainly a sense of victim blaming where again, it's like, authorities, people in power are like, well, you didn't listen when you, we said you should be courting. You didn't listen when we said keep it in, like, the front room. You didn't listen when, like, we said keep it on the couch where the campus police come through and make sure you're not petting. And so as a result, they create this culture of victim blaming so that they can be like, told you our customs and rituals were right. Yeah. And so I don't think this would have been nearly as bad if the authorities had reacted and been like, look, we don't like this culture of dating, but like sexual assault is always bad. And any man who like refuses to listen to a woman who refuses to like listen to her, like preserve her dignity is like reprehensible and should be shunned and like put in prison. Right. Mm -hmm. If they had reacted in that way, which would in my mind also be consistent with the mores of the past, it could have led to completely different outcomes. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not how they reacted. And arguably that's, you know, another support for this idea of like cultural patriarchy Mm -hmm. is the idea that the, go-to reaction was women are to blame and also all men are rapists. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Like, I I don't want you to think that this is like the end of the book. It certainly wraps up in like a more positive way. Good, I'm glad. We will talk in our final (laughs) section, which I guess is part four. Wow, we're really just wringing the life from this bad boy um, about like how perceptions of masculinity and femininity changed over time. And unfortunately, we will have to return to Steve Harvey. No. Yes. No. Okay. Well, I'll do this with Lauren. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you again for listening to this, everyone. If you feel you learned anything, let us know. Uh, If there's another book that does deep dives into aspects of like courtship and American culture, we would love to read it. So pass on any recommendations and we'll be more than happy to deep dive it on a future episode. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.